Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah, this is uh, uh, first first day of the year, and uh, I'm not one who tends to focus a whole lot on the special days. Some people some people consider every day like every other. I'm probably more more on that end of the spectrum. But it's a time at uh, the end of a new year to uh, uh, personally take stock. Some people financially have to close the books and and figure out where they are at the end of the year. Uh, and, and based on some discussions that Allison and I were having with each other this week, digging into some passages in the book of Ezekiel, I want to focus on two chapters in the book of Ezekiel primarily today. One is Ezekiel chapter 18 and Ezekiel chapter 33, because they explain something to me that's very significant and very simple about the nature of God and how he looks at us and what he how he views us. It's very, very simple, but I think if you get it, a lot of other things fall into place. And it's not this isn't something something it's it's second nature to a lot of people, but to some people it's kind of it's kind of foreign. So we'll take a look at it. Let's let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm going to read the first 18 verses. And if this is a little different, it's because I'm reading out of a translation that's based on the Septuagint than what you have. But I think it's pretty much the same. Ezekiel chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, what is the meaning of this parable among the children of Israel, which says, The fathers eat unripe grapes, and the children's teeth grind? As I live, said the Lord, you shall no longer use this parable in Israel, for all souls are mine, the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins, he shall die. But the man who is righteous and does judgment and righteousness, who will not eat on the mountains or lift up his eyes to the inventions of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife, and who will not approach a woman during her menstruation or oppress any man, but who will restore to the debtor his pledge and commit no robbery, but will give his bread to the hungry and cover the naked, who will not lend his money with interest, but will turn his hand from wrongdoing and do righteous judgment between a man and his neighbor and walk in my ordinances and keep my requirements to do them, this man is righteous. He will surely live, says the Lord. But if he begets a troublesome son who sheds blood and commits sins, does not walk in the way of his righteous father, but eats on the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, sets his eyes on the idol, commits lawlessness, exacts interest, and takes unjust gains, this son shall not live because he did all this lawlessness. He will surely die and his blood shall be upon him himself. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins his father commits, but fears and does not do according to all these things, does not eat on the mountains, nor set his eyes on the inventions of the house of Israel, 
nor defiles his neighbor's wife, nor oppresses anyone, nor withholds a pledge, nor commits robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked, turns his hand from wrongdoing, nor receives interest, nor takes unjust gains, but does righteousness and walks in my ordinances, this son shall not die for the wrongdoings of his father. He will surely live. As for his father, if he cruelly oppresses and robs his brother and does these contrary things in the midst of my people, he shall die in his wrongdoing. So, we have the story of three generations here that Ezekiel's using to illustrate a point. The, father, the, the grandfather in the story, the hypothetical, is a righteous man, and he gives birth to a son who's unrighteous, and then he gives birth to the grandson, and the grandson sees how the ways of his wicked father, and he, he turns 180 degrees in the other direction, is righteous. So you have righteous grandfather, unrighteous son, and righteous grandson. So you have two complete, complete uh, shifts that take place over the three generations. A couple things to point out here that are pretty obvious. No one can coast on their father or their grandfather's spiritual coattails. That each one of us, I think all of us, it's second nature to us. This is no news to us, but he's stating it. You can't coast on somebody else's spiritual coattails. Everyone is going to be judged individually. So you can't say, well, my father was a good guy, so I get in, I get in uh, automatically. The second thing is a righteous man can have an unrighteous son. And an unrighteous man can have a righteous son. Now, I don't know if anybody taught this, but it was strongly implied. I remember years ago, or I got this impression that if I did everything right, then certainly all of my sons would become Christians and daughters would become Christians, and therefore I would be qualified to be an elder in the church because I, that, was the, that was the proof that I did everything right. Now, in the story here, it says that the father can be a completely righteous man who's doing all the right things, and he can have his son that does everything completely in the opposite direction. He doesn't say, well, he was a pretty righteous. He says, this is, you'd be a totally righteous father, and you can have an unrighteous son. So this can happen. Many times it did happen in the scriptures. And a really wicked father can have a totally righteous son who learns from the example of his parent. So while the scriptures say, it does say in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's a proverb. It's a principle. It's not a lockdown guarantee that... I think of it as some people think of parenting as like you, you have a you have a, a house plant, you have complete control over the environment. You know, you, you control. You have the pot potting soil there. You have the water. You have the nutrients. You have the temperature controlled in the house. It, everything is under control. You're controlled. And if you do everything right, your plant's going to do really well. It's just like just like having a little hot house plant in your in your home. And it's not like that. You don't control everything. First of all, you don't control all the influences. Plus, the plant has to make its own decisions. It's not an inanimate object. And we're involved in a spiritual war here, too. Satan is going to try to attack every single individual in any way that he can. 
Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Cain and Abel were two sons of the same parents. So throughout history, throughout the Bible, there are plenty of examples of good and bad children who come from the same parents. And righteous parents who have unrighteous children and, 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 and vice versa. So there are basic principles in the scriptures that for parents that, that, you, that you need to bring your children up in the training instruction of the Lord, do the best job that you can, but there's no guarantee that it's going to turn out that way. So he, he gives the example starting off with a righteous man who has a totally unrighteous son who does everything the opposite of, of what was modeled and taught to him. The next thing that's interesting to me here is he gives the character. This is one of the few places in the scriptures where it explains righteousness in detail. In Ezekiel 18 and again in Ezekiel 33, the word righteous and righteousness is used a lot. So it's a word that's in the New Testament. Jesus said, unless you're righteous, in, in Matthew 5, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, well, what does that mean? What is righteousness? Well, he he goes and defines, says, let's say there's a righteous man. And then he goes through a description of what that means. What does a righteous man look like? Or what did it look like in the Old Testament? Well, he goes through the things. There's no idolatry. He's not going to become like all the pagan nations around him. He's not going to worship their gods. He's not going to follow their practices. The sexual purity, there's no adultery. Following the law of Moses, the, the statutes and ordinances of the Lord. Uh, somebody who's not greedy and stealing. They're not, they're not selfish and greedy. Uh, one of the things that jumped out to me here was there's a big emphasis on being generous and helping those who are in need, looking out for the poor. He's clothing the naked. He's feeding the hungry. This didn't start in the New Testament. The idea of righteousness was very much bound up with that in the Old Testament. He's impartial. He judges fairly. He doesn't side with the powerful, the rich, the influential. He'll tell the truth to everybody, and he treats everybody the same. There's In the New Testament, there is a similar practical description of what does a righteous person look like in James chapter 1. I'm going to read that. Let's just try to get a picture of what, what does it mean to be living a righteous life. Practically speaking, <clears throat> James chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 21 to 27. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not just hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's a religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So practically speaking, 
the life of a righteous person in the New Testament according to James. You're not just hearing the word of God, you're doing what it says. That you're a patient person who's not full of wrath, keeping a tight rein on your tongue, and then helping those who are in need, uh, looking after the widows and the orphans in their distress. So it's the same, same idea in Ezekiel that you're, you're, you're helping those people. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with uh, some old friends who went out uh, and had, uh, had dinner together. Alice and I, some, some friends of ours uh, for, from when we were in the... Uh, uh, when we were in the large church that had a large staff and, and, uh, and they had uh, buildings and facilities uh, that they had to pay for. And uh, I, I got an unusual question at the end of the dinner as we were sitting around talking with each other. Now, these are very serious Christians. They, they attend a church that has, that has a, spends a lot of money on buildings and on salaries. And... Uh, they knew that we came from that to where we are today, and they're and they're thinking, wait a minute, <clears throat> you're meeting in, in in Chris and Susan's living room, no building expenditures, you don't have any paid staff on the church, no staff no staff expenditures. <clears throat> he said, he said, now Chuck, what are you doing with all that extra money that you have now? <laughs> I was thinking, boy, that's a good question, and. Uh, it's a good question. What are we doing with the money that we have? Is God pleased with how we're using our money? And what it says in James is that we need to be looking out for the widows and orphans. We need to be looking out for helping those who are in distress. But I, I thought it was, it was a good question. It's a good time to think about what am I doing with what I have? Am I spending it on myself? Or am I living a life that God would consider righteous by how I'm using my money? And then the other thing he says here is keeping yourselves from being polluted by the world. Now, I'm an environmental engineer, so what I'm dealing with is pollution all the time, water pollution. There are contaminants that get into the water which you want to take out so that it's safe for people to drink. And the same picture is used here from being polluted or contaminated by something that's toxic and that's dangerous. And um, we were, Alice and I were at a wedding, and I started listening to some of the words of the music that they were playing at the, at the end of the wedding, and, and it was, was kind of horrified that, hey, this is a Christian wedding, what's going on here? And... and uh, and then the, the movies that people go to or the, the influence they have in their lives. And I'm not saying this to particularly be throwing stones at anybody looking down, but just, just I guess, stop and think about in what way am I being polluted by the world? I'm driving down the road, I'm bored, and uh, I've, got a, I've got a cassette that I can put in to listen to that's a Bible or a lesson, or I can turn, the, turn the, the dial and find out what's the news, what's on, what's on the radio, what music is playing. And uh, I think, okay, what decision am I making there? Or, I mean, we don't watch television. I don't remember the last time I went to the movies, but that doesn't mean I'm not being contaminated by the world because an internet is a wonderful way to get polluted by the world with everything that you, everything you can get 
on uh, on TV and movies. It's just a different 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 method of administering the dose. That's one of the things I've got to take stock in my own life is to what extent am I being contaminated by even reading the news or just following what's on what my my appetite is my curiosities my appetite on or with, with the internet. So living a righteous life is watching out making sure we're not be polluted by the world. Uh, helping those who are in need around us and 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 and, and being being generous and concerned. The, the to me the gold standard for Old Testament righteousness is the description when Job mm-hmm. defends his own integrity before God. And if I want to do a little uh, personal spiritual checkup to say let's 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 get on the treadmill and 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 check out the heart and, and see how we're really doing here. Uh, this is a good place for me to go. So at the beginning of the year, I thought, well, let me take a look at that. Let's turn to Job chapter 30. <clears throat> so Job is the man, of course, who God said to Satan, consider my servant Job, there's no one like him, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So Job is a, a, a righteous man. The other thing I noticed is people have people are very uncomfortable using the term righteous, but it's used in the Bible a lot. Now, Jesus says we need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That Jesus, that Jesus talked about Abel being a righteous man. Job chapter 30 and verse 25. So Job is defending his own life up to that point. He says, I wept over every man without strength and groaned when I saw a man in distress. While I held firmly to good things, days of evil happened to me instead. My stomach churns and will not be quiet, and days of poverty come upon me. I go groaning without restraint and stand up and cry out in the church or the assembly. I become a brother of sirens and a companion of sparrows. My skin has been greatly darkened. My bones are burned up in heat. My lyre is turned to mourning and my song into weeping. Chapter 31 and verse 1, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes, and I will not think upon a virgin. What is God apportioned from above, and what is the inheritance of the mighty one from on high? Is it not destruction for the wrongdoer and alienation for those who do lawlessness? Will he not see my way and count all my steps? If I have walked with scorners, or if my foot is hastened to deceit, may he weigh me therefore with a just scale, for he knows my integrity. If my foot is turned from the way, or my heart is followed after my eyes, or if gifts have touched my hands, then may I sow and others eat. Yes, may I be uprooted on the earth. If my heart has followed after another man's wife, or if I have laid wait at her door, then also may my wife please another. And may my children be humiliated, for the rage of anger is uncontrollable in defiling another man's wife. For it is a fire burning on every side, and whomever it comes upon it, it destroys at the roots. If I have despised the judgment of my servant or handmaid when they judge me, what then will I do when the Lord brings me to trial and visits me? How shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? So... We were fashioned in the same womb. But the weak did not dismiss whatever they, whatever they happened to need. And I did not cause the eyes of the widow to fail. 
If I ate my morsel by myself and did not share it with the orphan, but from my youth I nourished him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have neglected the naked as he was perishing and did not clothe him, if the weak did not bless me and if their shoulders were not worn by the fleece from my lambs, if I raised my hand against the orphan trusting my strength was far superior to his, then let my shoulder fall from my collarbone, let my arm be torn from its socket. For the fear of the Lord sees me, I cannot endure his burden. If I have made gold my strength or trusted the precious stone, if I have rejoiced because of my wealth was great, and if I too laid my hand on countless treasures, or do I not see the shining sun eclipsed and the moon waning? For this does not uh, depend on them. If my heart has been secretly deceived, and if I have laid my hand upon my mouth and kissed it, then may this also be reckoned to me as the greatest lawlessness, for I have lied against the Lord Most High. If I too was glad at the fall of my enemies, and my heart said, Good, well done, then may my ear hear my curse, and may I be a byword among the people, my people in affliction. If my handmaids have often said, Who may give us his meat to be satisfied? But I was very kind For the stranger did not spend the night outside, and my door was open to everyone who came. If I sinned involuntarily and then covered my sin, for I did not stand in awe of the great multitude so as not to confess before them, and if I permitted a poor man to go out of my door with an empty bosom, who may listen to me? And if I had not feared the hand of the Lord so as to the document I had against someone, I would place it as the crown of my shoulder and read it. And if I did not tear it up and return it, having taken nothing from the debtor. If at any time the land groaned against me, and if its furrows wept together, if I have eaten its strength alone without paying, or if I have grieved the soul of the owner of the land by casting him out, then may the nettle come to me instead of wheat and bramble instead of barley. Thus Job ceased speaking. So compare yourself to Job and his righteousness and the standard that he held himself to personally. He was generous to everyone in need. He had a high standard of sexual purity. He wouldn't even be lusting after uh, people, whether they were married or single. He didn't put his trust in his wealth. He even wished his enemies well. He didn't want bad things to happen to his enemies. He wasn't looking out for justice for them. He didn't get involved in idolatry or pagan worship. He openly confessed his sins and he kept his word and his integrity, paid all of his debts, and fulfilled all his responsibilities. So that's the standard of righteousness in the Old Testament. So when Jesus is talking about righteousness or Ezekiel is talking about righteousness, you get a clear picture of what, of what that is. You can stop and take inventory of your own life as we look on great examples like this. Let's turn to Ezekiel, back to Ezekiel chapter 18, starting reading in verse 19. This is a long passage here, Ezekiel chapter 18, starting in verse 19. So continue where we left off before. Then you say, why does a son not bear the wrongdoing as his father? Because the son practiced righteousness, showing mercy, kept all my commandments, and did them. Thus he will surely live. 
but the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the wrongdoings of his father, nor shall the father bear the wrongdoings of his son. The righteousness of a righteous man shall be upon himself, and the lawlessness of a lawless man shall be upon himself. But if a lawless man turns from all the lawless deeds he commits and keeps all my commandments and does righteousness and shows mercy, he will surely live and not die. None of the transgressions he commits will be remembered. In the, if the righteous, in the righteousness he does, he shall live. Do I ever will the death of a lawless man, says the Lord, since my will is for him to turn from his evil way and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits a wrongdoing, according to all the lawlessness a lawless man commits, then all the righteousness he does shall not be remembered. And the transgression he falls into, and in his sins he commits, in these he shall die. So let's pause and think about what he's saying right here. So the first thing he says is, he repeats what we studied before, which is, the if a righteous man has an unrighteous son, God's going to judge each person individually on the basis of what he's done, not based on what his father has done. But then he says, if an unrighteous man turns from his unrighteousness and repents, okay, he says in verse 22, none of the transgression he commits will be remembered. In the righteousness he does, he shall live. So God says, if a man is unrighteous and then repents, I will forget his unrighteousness all the stuff he's done in the past. Now, many people, is a significant point comes in life, or maybe you're looking back at your life, something has happened, the beginning of a new year, and you look back on your life, and not everybody looks back with pleasant memories. Some people look back with a lot of regret in life, thinking, wow, if only I had done this. Look at the mistakes that I made. Look at the sins that I committed. Look at the opportunities that I had that I squandered in life, that I messed up. That's not the way that God looks at us. He says, if a person who has been unrighteous repents, that he will forget all the bad things that they did before. He says, I don't want anybody to perish. I don't want anyone to be lost. If they repent, if they've been unrighteous their whole lives and they repent and turn around, I will be very happy to forgive them. Now a lot of people think, okay, that means somebody repents, they become a Christian. This is but this is this is who God is, the nature of God. If you at this point in your life are full of regret for things that you did in the past, Take comfort and encouragement from what it says right here. God loves everybody. He loves the righteous. He loves the wicked. And if people are living lives of sin and they repent later on in life, he is delighted to forgive them, to forget the mistakes that they've made, and, uh, and, and because he doesn't want anybody to perish. That's who God is. It says, do I ever will the death of a lawless man? 
That's God's. God says. I mean, he, it's asking. He, he doesn't even have to answer the question. This question, the answer is obvious. It's a rhetorical question. I don't want anybody to perish. Verse twenty-five. Yet you say the Lord's way is not straight. Hear now, all the house of Israel, is my way not straight? Is your way straight? When the righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits transgression and dies in the transgression he commits. He should die because of it. Again, when a lawless man turns away from the lawlessness he commits and does judgment and and righteousness, then he guards his life, for he turned himself away from all the ungodlessness he committed. He will surely live and not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The Lord's way is not right. Is not my way right, O house of Israel? Is not your way wrong? I shall judge you, O house of Israel, each one according to his way, says the Lord. Return and turn away from all your ungodliness, and it shall not be to you as a punishment for wrongdoing. Cast away from yourself all your ungodliness you commit against me, and make a new heart and a new spirit for yourselves. For why should you die, O house of Israel? I do not wish the death of the ones who die, says the Lord. So, it's a beautiful picture of, of God's heart. He he. He doesn't want to condemn anybody. He doesn't want anybody to die. He's pleading with the wicked people who are about to be hauled off into captivity, who've rejected him and are leading godless lives. He's saying, turn back to me. Repent and live. Turn away from your ungodliness, and and I will be happy to forgive you. But on the other hand, to the righteous, he's saying, Watch out, because if you turn away from your righteousness, you're going to perish in the end. Uh, very similar passage in Ezekiel chapter 33, which uh, to me drives the point home even further. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 10. As for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you spoke, saying, our errors and lawlessnesses are upon us, and we waste away in them. So how can we live then? Say to them, as I live, thus says the Lord, I will not, I do not will the death of the ungodly man. So the ungodly man should turn away, should turn from his way and live. Turn heartily from your way. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Say to the sons of the people, "The the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day he goes astray. As for the lawlessness of the ungodly man, it will not harm him in the day he turns from his lawlessness. But a righteous man who goes astray cannot save himself. When I say regarding the righteous man, this man puts his trust in his righteousness but commits lawlessness, then none of his righteousness will be remembered, for he shall die in the wrongdoing he commits. Again, when I say to the ungodly man, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and does judgment and righteousness, restores the pledge, <coughs> gives back what he has stolen, walks in the ordinances of life without committing wrongdoing, he will surely live. Thus he will not die. None of his sins he committed will be remembered, for he does judgment and righteousness. By doing these things he shall live. Yet the sons of the people will say, The, Lord, the way of the Lord is not upright. But it is their way that's not upright. When the righteous turn from from his righteousness and commits lawlessness, he will die because of it. But when the sinner turns from his lawlessness and does judgment and righteousness, 
He shall live because of it. Yet this is what you say, the way of the Lord is not upright. O house of Israel, I shall judge every one of you according to his ways. His expression he uses, the righteous man cannot trust in his righteousness. Now what does that mean? In the context that he's talking about, I think what he's saying is the righteous man can't trust in his righteousness and go out and commit evil. Imagine, you can't look at righteousness as like a bank account where you, you're, you're salting money away. You know, I've lived, I lived 20 years of a righteous life. I've got this big, you know, giant 401k amount of money that's just piled up here of, of, of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So now I can coast and I can live a selfish and unrighteous life because after all, look at all the great stuff I've done in the past in my life. He says, you can't do that. Or in my field, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, so I'll do, I do uh, uh, water treatment. It's not like a reservoir where you just fill it up with water, and once the reservoir is full, you can just coast and go on vacation. He says it's not like that. You can't store up righteousness and then rely on that as something based on what you've already done in the past. He says, if you live a long life of righteousness and then turn away at the end, you will perish just like the person who lived an unrighteous life their whole life. So you can't rely on the righteousness of what you've done in the past. That's what he's saying there. When an ungodly person repents and does what's righteous, God is happy to forgive him. This is the same exact principle that Jesus is talking about in Luke 15, in the story of the prodigal son. He turns back at the end, and the father is happy to forgive him. God is, not, God is no more merciful in the New Testament than he is in the Old Testament. Jesus is telling the same basic story. If someone at the end of their life repents, God doesn't want anyone to perish, and he forgives them and he treats them the same. It's the same as the parable of the worker in the vineyards, where people also thought that was, that was unfair, saying, wait a minute, we've been working all day long, we've been, we've been bearing the heat of the day, and, and these other people just got, just got uh, to working in the vineyard at the tail end of the day, and they're going to get the same payment that we are? That doesn't seem very fair. And he says, well, that's the way it is. You, you're getting what I said that you'd get, and they're going to get what they said that they would get. But this is the nature of God. Now, what that means is, if you've been living a righteous life, you can't relax. Number one, you've been living a righteous life for the last year, 20 years, whatever. That's nice, but the real question is, what are you going to do between now and the time that you die? Okay? It's very clear. By the same token, if you have been falling short if you have been sinning, messing up, falling short, what that means is if you repent today and you turn back to God, that God will forgive you. Not because you're so wonderful, but because God is waiting to forgive anyone who repents and turns back to him. That's who God is. He's always been that way. 
He made it clear in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 18 and chapter 33 that people thought it was unfair, but God says, that's the way I am. I want everyone to repent. doesn't matter how you lived your life. It matters how you end your life. That's what God is looking for. So good news for those who've messed up. If, you, if your life was full of regrets, don't waste any time in self-indulgent self-pity and regret and just dragging all this baggage around with you. That's not what God is looking for. He just wants you to repent no matter how bad you've been so far in life. No matter how many of these things, when you look at the example of of Job or what it says in James, no matter how many things that you need to, to take stock of and repent, God just wants you to repent right now and he will forget the past. That's what he tells us. He will not just forgive it, but he will forget and he will be happy to do that He doesn't want anybody to perish. That's who God is. So, I I, I guess I would encourage at this point in time, the start of a new year, this is a good time to take stock of your life in terms of all of the different aspects of righteousness, of integrity, of lust, of worldliness, of being polluted by the world, of helping the poor, in all these different areas of, of life, of righteousness, to take a good, hard look at your life. And if you're doing great, that's nice, but what are you going to do today? What are you going to do now and, and on the way out? Are you going to finish stronger than you've done so far? And if you've done lousy, repent. Don't drag the baggage around. God's happy to forgive you and, and devote yourself to following the example of righteousness that Ezekiel talks about, that Job lived out, and that James is calling us to. And uh, Happy New Year.